You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right. Amen. So we are, uh, for those of you who are new to City Lights, we're in this uh, series where God really uh, kind of put on my heart that we should go through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we talked about how this book is written to a, a church that's kind of a mess in area, every area of life. Um, but yet Paul is writing to them because he is thankful that God and Christ is in them and that God is going to do and has been doing amazing things despite their dysfunction, right? So that's where we're at. And last week we talked about um, how it's not about a specific individual. It's not about a leader. And when we make things about leaders, when we make things about specific anointed people, uh, we talked about prophecy and other gifts as well. When we make it about like the elect ones who have these gifts and I just have this, then we, when we rob the cross of its power when we make it about people, right? So that's kind of where we are. Um, but this morning, before we get into uh, this passage a little bit, let me, ever, let me ask you guys, um, how many of you have heard, of course you've heard this phrase probably, a jack of all trades, master of none, right? Has anybody ever felt like that in life? Maybe most of us or some of us. Okay, the rest of you guys are masters at everything. It's awesome. Um, but I kind of felt like that through most of my life where I'm like, I'm, I can do this. Like, I can play a couple chords on the guitar, but I'm not great at it. I can, you know, make a little movie with a video camera, but I'm not that smart with cameras. I can, I know some things about computers, but not everything. I've literally, my wife and I counted, I've never been fired from a job, ever. And I've, yeah, I've never been fired from a job, but somehow between the ages of 15 to where I'm at now, 30, but actually we counted before that. So, like, I've had this job for a little while. I've had about 30 different jobs in 15 years. Um, every different field. I've done everything you can do in a restaurant. Um, I've done every, like a lot of different things in construction from roofing to drywall. Like, I've done everything in, in the construction job. Uh, I've done all kinds of retail positions from Bible stores to video stores to clothing stores. Never been fired, but kind of through my life while trying to pursue ministry and go through college, I've done all these random seasonal and like other jobs. I, I've mowed baseball fields. I've, I've cleaned cop cars. I've done all kinds of weird things. Um, and I've never been fired, so I'm really happy about that. It wasn't like I just can't keep a job. I've just done all these things, but they weren't my calling, right? So I've done things to get through. I've always kind of felt like this jack of all trades. I can do it if somebody's with me or somebody shows me how, but I'm not a master at it. Make sense? Um, and let me just kind of say that as well, that feeling like that kind of robs me sometimes of actually stepping forward and doing things and leading things. Because I've always viewed myself as like, there's somebody who can do it better, so I'll let them do it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you just feel like you're not the best, so let somebody else do it. And um, I think that mindset kind of took place even when I was a kid. Um, I, uh, I've told this story a little bit before, but when somebody speaks criticism against you and you realize you're not the best, are you, are you like planning on trying that again most of the time? Not really, right? When I was a kid, I was 10 years old, and I signed up for my first season of Little League. And uh, 
a couple weeks ago, she, post, she finds me on Facebook, and she found a picture of me, and she posted and tagged me in my Little League uniform. And I'm like, thank God none of my friends have seen this picture. Because, like, literally none of you have commented on it. I'm like, so somehow this slipped through the Facebook radar. But this morning, as I was praying about this, I'm like, God's like, you got to show him the picture. Get over your pride and show him the picture. So here is me in Little League. We have that picture. There I am, right? <laughs> Ten years old. I showed this to my girls the other day, and Haley goes, Dad, why do you look so fat? I'm like, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Haley. That was rude. <laughs> but it's true. Um, we have the back. This is actually a baseball card that they gave us. Uh, we have the back side of that card, too, with my stats, right? Um, I'm 10 years old, four foot six, 128 pounds, so that's a little heavy. Um, probably, um, I, I'd never, I don't remember ever being under 200, but apparently it happened at one point. I uh, played right field. Uh, our team name was the Clubbers, which is a bad name for a team when you look fat, because there's a lot of nicknames that go with that. Um, that's true. And there's my signature. Yeah, look at that. Isn't that awesome? That's a great signature for a 10-year-old. And uh, down there at the bottom, though, this is 1995, you can see it. Right above 1995 is the name of our coach, Vance. Vance. Let me tell you about Vance. (laughs) We were a pretty bad team. We lost a lot of games. And our second to our last game, we lost by a lot. And at the end of the game, he is yelling at us. And this, word, this phrase came out of his mouth, I never want to see your faces again. I'm 10, and I'm chubby, and I'm not good. I'm playing right field, people. <laughs> so guess what? He never saw my face again. So I didn't sign up for Little League the next year, and I never signed up for Little League again. And then I get to college, and I went to a Bible college, and it wasn't like a huge Bible college, and we had a baseball team. And they were pr- pretty decent for Bible colleges and baseball teams, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, but I had a couple friends who were on the baseball team come up to me and say, Jesse, you should really play with us. I'm like, no, I haven't played ba- baseball in years. I- I'm awful. And they're like, Jesse, you really should. It's not really about how good you are. We just would like you to play with us. And I declined. And now, the, to me, that is literally one of the, like, the big regrets in my life because I let this insecurity in myself from when I was 10 years old and a coach named Vance define the way I engaged in my world with my friends, the way I, I took, chal- uh, took steps of faith, right? I never played again until we started softball a few years ago, but I literally never swung a bat because of that season, because of me, a 10-year-old chubby kid on the clovers and a coach who screamed at us. And this morning, sometimes in our Christian life, we've got to get to a point where we realize it's never about us, it's about him anyway. And sometimes God calls us to do things that we do them, but we do them with fear and trembling. We don't feel very secure in it. Make sense? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with great words. I came to you with fear and trembling. I was a weak man. I, did not, I was not confident in myself at all, is what Paul is talking about. Um, in Bible college, we had to take a class... Um, it was um, public speaking class, right? And 
public speaking, I believe, is a good thing if you're supposed to be a public speaker. And I think it's good to critique each other on, on how we communicate. I, you know, I've listened to my podcast and I edit myself all the time. So what you hear online is a lot better than what you hear in person, just being honest. Like, I take that out. That was weird, <laughs> you know. But, like, it's good to hear yourself and critique yourself sometimes, right? But what that can do is if you're constantly critiquing yourself, you're never confident in the Christ in you. And so there comes this balance where public speaking class in Bible college is not good if we're planning on being led by the Spirit and just letting the power of the cross come out of our mouth no matter how we look or how we feel or how confident we are, right? Paul didn't take a speech class, and for that I'm very thankful. He did not second-guess himself, but he went to the church in Corinth, and he led them to faith with fear and trembling, knowing it's not about what he could say, not about being able to be persuasive in words. It's about Christ. Let me tell you another reason you're thinking, well, Paul, Paul was pretty bold. Paul was like a fighter. Why are you telling me that he was nervous and trembling? Well, in Corinth, we've talked about the culture of Corinth a little bit, but in Corinth, they took real pride in their, their wise sophists, we call them, these, these philosophers who would come in and raise up disciples to fight out their philosophy. And they would come in, and everything in, in, Corinth, in, in the church in Corinth and in that city was about how smart you were, how eloquent you were, and what was logical and practical. Make sense? How can you communicate something and win us all over? And Paul, in that day, let me say something. Crucifixion was not a word that you heard all the time. Crucifixion was a word that you would not say in a good, socially acceptable um, meeting with honorable people, right? You would not even talk about it because it was gruesome, it was gory, it was degrading, right? Today, we don't really view it like that. But you would, let me say, it's kind of like showing up uninvited to a dinner party, right? This is what Paul's doing. It's kind of like showing up to a dinner party with doctors and teachers and lawyers and business people and then sitting down telling them about a guy who was beaten beyond recognition by the government, and then they decided to kill him by putting big, huge nails through his hands and hanging him on wooden beams and putting him in a position to where he would eventually suffocate and die. Like, this was torture. Would you walk into a nice business meeting, like the next time you, whatever job you do, right? I've been to a Chamber of Commerce meeting before. Imagine walking into the Chamber of Commerce or around all these people that are, are pretty, like, well off in society and saying, hey, let me tell you about this guy who was just beaten, like ridiculously beaten so people couldn't recognize him and we put big nails in his hands, hung him up to a tree and like persecuted him, pulled out his beard, he suffered and died, he couldn't breathe. That's not polite conversation, right? You try that at the next dinner party you go to. Just don't even talk about Jesus. Go ahead and talk about any kind of crucifixion or execution you've ever seen. Let's, let's let that be your subject of conversation. That's weird, right? And so what Paul does, though, he shows up in this city of these smarty pants. Let's just be real. These people who think they're so special. And he says, this guy who was crucified, died the worst way possible, he is the only way to life. Not a whole lot to be confident in in that, is there? The truth of the gospel, let me say this, was something beyond social acceptability. The imagery of the cross was not something you discuss. And Paul realizes if, if the cross is true, if the power of the gospel is real, I'm not going to win them over by saying smart things. I just got to tell them the truth. That a Jewish man 
bled and died for their sins, and he's the only way for life. And they have to submit to the lordship of this guy who died and rose again. This is insane. Literally, the gospel sounds insane to the unbeliever. Paul recognizes this. But yet he was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because this is the mystery of God that holds the power of salvation. We have to ask ourselves, how much do we really believe in the power of the cross to save people and compare that to our own faith in ourselves to save people and our own ability to put a nice performance together? How much do we trust in ourselves to win the lost and how much do we trust in the cross to win the lost? If we truly believe that this is the good news if we really believe this is the great news, if the gospel means good news, if we truly believe that, that this is the best thing ever, that this is life, this is life and death, through Christ is life, if we believe that, then it should shape the way we view our city, right? Let me talk for a few minutes about the lostness of Scranton. A a recent... um, survey, a census, shows that 2.3% of, nor- of Northeast PA is what's considered evangelical Christian, which means we believe in salvation alone through Christ alone, that he is the only way to, for salvation and for life now, right? That is the evangelical Christian gospel. So 2.3% of the entire population in Northeast PA believe that. The Um, I think it's the Baptist Missionary Board views anything less than 2% is what they call an unreached people group, which means unreached doesn't mean, basically unreached means that your average person has no chance because they don't know anybody who can communicate a clear gospel message. We are almost considered an unreached people group. That is the city that you and I live in. I know so often we think, well, it's a Christian nation. They've heard the gospel. The truth is they haven't. This city has not heard that Christ came and died for them and loved them and wants relationship with them and he offers free forgiveness to them through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. The people in this city, in this area of Pennsylvania have not heard that message. We are almost a lost people group. We are a lost portion of America. That's Scranton. John 14, 12, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, he says it twice, greater works will you do. I want to look at that for just one second. So let's think about the works of Jesus. What did he do? Healed the blind, healed the lame, forgave sins. He raised people from the dead. He put a guy's ear back on. Like, Jesus did some pretty cool stuff, right? He uh, basically, with just a word, made a fig tree wither up and die. He walked on water, you know, Jesus did a lot. He cast out demons, right? He prophesied, he saw into something, He's the woman at the well. He knew about the husbands that she had had. Like, Jesus was pretty awesome. Jesus did amazing things, and Jesus says this. He says, truly, 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 truly isn't just like something like a little catchphrase that Jesus walked around saying all the time. You don't really see that a whole lot in, with Jesus. And is there anything that Jesus said that wasn't truly, truly, which means real fact? No. Everything Jesus said was true. 
He gave us truth. Every, decl- every commandment, every statement he said was fact. But for some reason, Jesus looks at this statement that he's about to say, and he says, truly, truly. He's saying, I want you to hear this and make it reality in your heart. So I'll repeat it. This is real. This is real. Check it out. Here it comes. Everything I do, you can do better. You're going to do greater then. So what does that mean? Can you think of miracles cooler than what Jesus did? Like, can you think of cooler miracles, bigger miracles, greater miracles, and then say to yourself, I can do that? Has anybody ever said that? Like, come up with a cool miracle. No, I see no raising, nobody raising their hands. So what does he mean by that? When we as the body of Christ, we are all over the globe proclaiming the gospel. I'm not going to do something cooler in essence than Jesus did or greater. I get to do that. You get to do that. We get to do that. So in a sense, we are doing what Jesus did all over the globe. That's how we are greater than what Jesus did. We can raise the dead. We can cast out sick. We can pray for, or cast out sick. That'd be weird. Cast out demons. Pray for the sick. Don't cast out sick. We want to pray for them. Jesus is the only one who's not afraid to go into a leper colony. He brings life to them instead of having their death on him. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of us, honestly. We should, I, I was in a, a pastor's meeting a few weeks ago, and the one guy had a cold, and everybody like backed away. I'm thinking, I understand but you're missing the power of the gospel there. I don't, I don't, I should go pray for you and touch the sick instead of worrying about the sick touch, touching me. So when we have this in our hearts that we can go and proclaim the gospel, see people's lives transformed by the power of the cross, heal the sick and cast out demons and prophesy and speak life and demonstrate the kingdom principles all across the world, then we can say truly, truly, we are doing greater things than Jesus did. But if we believe that, then it should affect what our days look like. If Jesus says to you, I want you to do greater things, then we should take that as a personal mandate, right? Every day, 180,000 people die. Every day. 95% of them do not know Jesus. 95%. That's the reality of the world that we live in. The population on earth is growing rapidly. And more and more people are not knowing Christ. That doesn't mean the church isn't massively moving. There are countries where the church is growing exponentially. But then there are other countries like the U.S. where the church is dying off. And Europe. India is experiencing a move of God. China is experiencing a move of God. But the population of the earth is drastically outgrowing that over the next 20, 30 years. Every day, 180,000 people die and, get, and, and don't know Jesus. Well, 95% of them don't know Jesus. That literally is, if you look at all the population of Scranton and double that, every day that many people are dying and spending eternity in hell separated from a good, loving father. That's the reality of the world that we live in. But do we wake up and see that? That my neighbors are dying and not seeing Christ. That somebody around me, somewhere on the earth, has not heard the gospel, and is now suffering eternally. I love that Jesus says to his disciples, lift up your eyes and see that the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Church, we have to lift up our eyes and look around us and see the harvest is ripe. There are people who don't know this message. We cannot buy the lie that says they've all heard because they haven't. They haven't heard. And most of it's most of it's because we haven't said anything. 
If you know nothing but Christ crucified, then you can't see your own pride. You can't see your own fears. You can't see your own priorities. You have to see the lost and the broken. You have to, you have to see where the gospel has to go. If you see and know nothing but him crucified, then that's all you can see everywhere you look is Christ is crucified and they don't know. Christ is crucified and they're lost. Christ is crucified and they are eternally separated because they haven't heard. Paul stands there in front of the church. He said, when I came to you, I could only see him. Even though I was shaking in my boots, I said him because it's all I can hang on to. That's the truth of the gospel and that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the cross. It wasn't me who changed it. It was him who changed you. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire is that we, as his people, proclaim him so that nobody is lost, so that the world is saturated with the gospel. That is why, when I just went to Florida, that's why a few weeks ago we had Christ together, that's the reason why pastors from different denominations are starting to link hands and say we're in this together, because this city needs to be saturated with the good news of the gospel. And if we don't do it, nobody will. Church, this is a mandate for us as well. We have to start looking at our insecurities like me as a kid with a baseball bat. We have to stop looking at our ability to speak clearly and use smart words and be able to persuade people to believe our faith because our faith is insane to the unbeliever. Scripture says that. It's okay. It's not your power or your ability to communicate something. It's his power by the Spirit to get it into their hearts and make it reality. It's not about you. It's not Church is never about you. It's never about me. It's about him and his gospel reaching the ends of the earth, saving all. He desires that none would perish, but that we all find him. That is his desire. He is slow to anger, rich in love. That's our God. Becoming a Christian, let me say this, becoming a Christian is not about you. It's not. I know it's personal faith, absolutely. There's a personal walk I get to live where I get to have joy every morning. I get to experience his goodness. But that's not for me just to feel good. Jesus didn't come save me just just so I feel good forever. It's so that I can proclaim his goodness to the earth. We are created to be vessels that pour out the goodness inside of us, not store it up and hoard it. But in America, we love hoarding our things, don't we? It's not so you can live a comfortable life. Too many gospel messages, quote-unquote, preach your best life today and you can live a comfortable life and have a nice house. That is not the Christianity that Jesus speaks. Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This gospel is not about you living comfortably. It's about taking up our cross and proclaiming him everywhere we go. It's seeing people through the eyes of the cross, knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because when we know that, it it becomes nothing about me. It becomes everything about the world around me and him being glorified. This morning, I, I I want you to hear this. 
the basic message of the gospel. I, wa- I want you, for some of you guys have no clue what I'm talking about. Maybe you're new to this. You're like, what, what is so good about the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that we are all broken people and we cannot save ourselves. The best person in here, Romans tells us, has fallen short of the glory of God. So this good, perfect God can't, who's perfect cannot have relationship with brokenness, right? He can't, if he's perfect, then darkness is not found in him. So how can he relate to us? But out of his goodness, Jesus came, bled and died, led a, sin, a sinless life, and was resurrected and paid my sin. He paid for my sins. He paid for your sins. That's the gospel. And it's looking to him saying, I believe in you as my salvation, and I submit to your lordship with my life. It's a free gift, but it requires, it requires a response. That's the gospel. If you don't know, that's, that's the basics of it. Gospel 101, right there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace versus costly grace. Costly grace means it costs us our, life, our lives. We take up our cross. We say, I've found my life in you. I've gained my life by losing it. I've lost my pride. I've lost my self-worth. And I've put it all in you and what you say I am. And now I do what you ask me to do. That's what the gospel is. That's what being a Christian means. The reason I think that for Christianity, and I, I know this is a sweeping statement a little bit, but the reason I say I think that Christians aren't disgusted by the cross like the church in Corinth was is because for us, it's a symbol of love. It's not a symbol of death. It, it, it is, but it's not. It's the greatest gift we've ever experienced. It's the mystery of the gospel. So for me, the cross has lost some of its gore. And I'm not saying that's always good, but you guys know what I'm talking about. For us, the cross is hope. For us, the cross is life. For us, the cross is everything. It's why we hang it on our walls. It's why we wear it around our necks. I know that it's become cliche to a lot of the people in the world, and they just wear it, and they don't know what it means. I get that. But the truth is that there's power in the cross. And if we look at it, we look at nothing except for Christ and him crucified, that we're able to see this inside of me, this hope inside of me has to pour out. I can't hold it anymore. I know, I know this is a short passage, and this is probably a short message, and maybe you didn't enjoy any of it except for the picture of me in a tight baseball uniform. That's weird, but... But this is, I think, probably one of the most important messages that we can get in our hearts. Um, this is one of the most important messages that we can get in our hearts. This message isn't about how good I sound or how edgy I am or how funny I am today. This message is not about what I can speak or persuade you to do. It's about the power of the cross that saves and transforms lives. That's what today's message is about. And the truth is, that's what your message every day should be about. Every day when you wake up, it should be about the power of the cross out of your mouth and to the world around you. Can, can I make a personal confession today? Don't worry, we don't have to go in like a little booth or anything. It's all right. It's not, it's not, we're not a Catholic church. It's okay. So these last few weeks have been really good for me um, and kind of overwhelming. 
but this week I was down in Florida and it became, something became really clear to me that I'm asking us as a church to be on mission for Jesus, right? I'm asking us to go and reach the city. And I've lived in my house. The 15th of May will be six years that we've lived here in the city. And I have not had a meal with any of my neighbors. I've waved hello. I've shoveled the guy's driveway a few times, basically because my wife told me to. (laughs) But if I can't reach my neighbors with the gospel, how can I expect you to do the same? Maybe some of you are thinking, Jesse, I don't even know where to start. What do you, you want us to speak the gospel and not worry about our, our pride, not worry about getting the words right. Then let me give you the same challenge that I'm giving myself. If I can know nothing but Christ and him crucified, then I got to get over my insecurities and my introvertness, if that's a word. And I got to go across the street and talk to them and say, hey, let's have dinner. Let's get to know each other. I want to love you. I want to give you a meal and then see where that conversation goes and proclaim Christ somehow. Maybe I want to give you as a church that challenge. If you don't know, even know your neighbors, why? It's the same thing I have to look at myself and repent of. I believe that Christ is our only hope and I know statistically that the world is dying and going to hell, but yet I'm not doing it, not doing anything about it then that shows that the belief of Jesus being the good news is disconnected from the reality in my heart. Make sense? I want that disconnect to not be there anymore. I want the reality of my heart and the proclamation of my lips to be that he is good and apart from him there is no life. And so my challenge for me, I talk to my wife, is to reach my neighborhood, to actually invite them into our home. Let me tell you a story. My one neighbor, the first time we ever met her, we were moving into our house, and she pulled up, and we had our U-Haul coming in right in front of our house. And we asked, hey, could you just move up a spot because we have the truck coming in? And she started dropping F-bombs. Naturally, I didn't want to meet her. But do I see her by knowing nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified? Make sense? The guys in the house next door, literally two weeks ago, There was a SWAT team on our porch with guns pointed to them because they were doing a drug bust at our house. Do I see them and know nothing but Christ and Him crucified? Or do I see them as another expendable life that lives around me? Another one of the 180,000 that can die and I just, oh well. Like I said, (laughs) this is not the happiest message, but it's the reality of the earth that we live on. And the commission that you and I were given. Jesus gave us his last words were a great commission, we call it. Go and make my disciples. Go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And how do I take the great commission and make it a great suggestion? This is not a suggestion. This is what being a disciple of Christ is. And I have to do it. You have to do it. We cannot bank on just the fact that we're not that smart. Paul knew he wasn't that smart. Paul said to Corinthians, the church of Corinthians, we talked about this last week, not many of you were wise, not many of you were talented, not many of you had rich, noble births, but God loves you and he's going to blow the minds of the world around you. That should become my reality and your reality. We weren't the best kid on the softball team, the baseball team, we weren't the smartest kid in class, 
We didn't graduate the high, highest in our class. Our family wasn't rich or wealthy. We don't have a lot of political influence, but we have Christ and Him crucified, and that pours out of my lips, and it changes the world around me. Does that make sense? If we can stand, there's not going to be like a major altar call where you come up and all of a sudden we take a royal pledge and then we sign up. Because I've done that before where I've made a pledge and then next week I was living my life. The only way that we're going to change this city is if each one of us make this mission our mission. If you buy in, that to me is the thing that is lacking in churches all over. Nobody in the congregation is buying into the mission of the gospel. I moved here because I was saying I buy in. I spent a ton of my time dedicated to this building because I buy in. But the truth is I don't exist for those of you in this room. I exist for those who aren't in this room yet and who aren't in other churches yet, who have never heard. That's why you exist. Stop trying to find the meaning to your life. I just gave it to you. (laughs) That's it. You exist so that you can experience God and share God. That's it. Can we make that the reality? Let's, Let's spend some time in worship. Let's spend time personally saying, God, Have I made this real? Have I seen just you and you crucified? Is that the message I preach with boldness? Let's pray and and worship for a few moments. You're like, hold up. See, this is where I'm not a good, eloquent speaker. I asked Kenny to sing this song for a reason, because it's like, whoa, what a change of pace. What did we just do? You're messing up my flow, man. What's happening? It's all right. The reason that we went from that message to this song is because there was a line that I heard this morning when we sang this. No chains on me, no chains on me, yeah. And instantly when we sang it this morning, because I'm a, a weirdo, I, I almost sang no strings on me, no strings on me. Like Pinocchio, right? And my thought was at that moment, how often is our worship... Yeah, Do you ever have a, a, what like a min, min, minuet or something like that, whatever those puppets are? Something like that, I don't, I don't know. Minuet, I don't know. Marionette, that's it. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, Anyway, whatever those things are with you, the puppets with the strings like Pinocchio, when you have those strings on you, your motion's limited, right? A puppet's motions are limited. It's basically just doing this, right? Just a few motions. But what was his thing? Like, I'm a real boy. And I know I'm weird, and this is not eloquent speech at all, right? But this is this morning I'm up front here, and we're singing this. And we can have real joy. Our life's been made because all of a sudden we were, we were held bondage in our sin. We were slaves to sin. We were like puppets moving around in our sin. But Christ came, cut those, pu- those strings that made us a real boy, right? We got real life all of a sudden. So we can move and we can dance however we want to, wherever we want to, and say whatever we want to because we're real. We become alive in Christ. And this morning, the reason I wanted them to sing this song is that as we sing this, we realize I'm not 10-year-old Jesse who can't play baseball. I'm alive in Christ. I'm an ambassador of the gospel. My strings, my chains of slavery are cut off. And so God has chosen to use me a weak, foolish vessel to confound the minds of the world. And that's the same thing for you. So why we're singing this this morning is that we can make the reality of the life inside of us the proclamation that comes out of us. We can dance, we can sing, we can proclaim Jesus. There's no strings, there's no chains of slavery, there's no chains of sin on us anymore. If we're slaves to anything, it says that I've become a bondservant to Christ, which means I want to do everything I can. I will do everything he asked me to do. 
So that gives us real freedom. So let's worship this morning, recognizing that you have the freedom, you have the ability to reach this city. Amen? Amen. Let's worship with that in mind. <laughs>